You have your fear, which might become reality. And you have Godzilla, which is reality. Computer on. We are go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. This is Michael Doherty, director of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and you are on Planet 8. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. On this episode of Planet 8, we will be discussing the newest uh, film in the Godzilla franchise, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Uh, straight away, let's kick it over to Chief Engineer Bob, uh, being that uh, Godzilla has a major uh, presence in uh, plastic and or other mediums here in the uh, Monster Garage where we record Planet 8. Bob, uh, uh, tell me about what you thought about Godzilla King of the Monsters. Well, yeah, I'm kind of sitting here in my little Godzilla t-shirt and uh, surrounded <laughs> by Godzilla toys and figures and everything else. Um, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, yeah, the last movie, 2014, I guess the biggest complaint was there wasn't much Godzilla, but you can't say that about this one. He's all over the place. Plus, mm. you've got Ghidra, you've got Rodan, you've got Mothra. And, uh, yeah, I think the human parts were, you know, good enough to keep it going when the monsters were off the screen. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I... I might have had more hopes for it going into it, but I wasn't solely disappointed. Not like Endgame, but (laughs) 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 Um, no, I I thought it was great. And uh, I did have a chance with uh, my Sci-Fi Japan partner, Keith Aiken, to go down to the uh, press screening and the red carpet premiere at Groman's Chinese. So I'll talk about that a little later in the episode, but uh, Hmm. So between that and uh, getting home and whatever, I've seen it three times now. Cool. Going, going a fourth this coming weekend. So, uh, so it's very cool. And, uh, and everything worked out perfectly because this episode is on June 8th and my birthday is June 7th. So what better way to spend my <laughs> birthday than talking about Godzilla? Well, listeners, if you'll join uh, Karen and I, let's sing Bob Happy Birthday. Happy, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but thank you, Karen, for, for jumping I'm in there. So, I'm so willing to celebrate. <laughs> uh, no, but if you guys want to shoot Bob a, a message on Facebook or something like that, I'm sure he'd appreciate it. Or if you just, you, want, or you just want to shoot Bob. Yeah, that's fine, too. <laughs> I, I was going to do that in the thing episode. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Um, 
Let me ask you, when, when I saw the film, uh, uh, went with my wife, we went and saw it on IMAX. We waited till Saturday. I was very close to going after work on Thursday, uh, but was just too pooped. Um, so we saw it on IMAX. It was great. Uh, the sound system in that theater, the, the seats shook, you know, and, and just seeing everything up on the big screen. I, I watched this movie with a nostalgic eye and uh god bless my wife because she has not seen a godzilla movie what uh, yeah she has never seen how, a godzilla movie so, time to start doing some education here uh you know she's she she's with me now and she's watching all kinds of things that but you know to be fair i'm watching you know fuller house and, and things that i've never watched in my <laughs> life before you poor man there's a trade-off <laughs> <laughs> With that nostalgic eye, though, um, I'll tell you, I got teary-eyed a couple of times when, like, Mothra... Uh, oh, spoiler alert, uh, kids. Yeah, there will we're, be we're gonna, many, 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 many spoilers. Yeah, as usual. Um, but when she first appeared um, uh, out of the larva state as the Mothra with the wings and everything on the waterfall, I mean, I didn't cry as... Uh, get emotional as I did when Cap in one of the best films in the summer, Endgame, um, <laughs> gilded the hammer. <laughs> but uh, it was a very nostalgic, and, and there's an emotional connection. I, I'm sure you felt this somewhat too, Bob, because you're way more into uh, the kaiju films than I am, and uh, Karen to a degree as well. Um, it, was, it was a popcorn movie, it was fun. And um, I was talking to my friend Jay, and, and he's seen it twice. I've only seen it once. He the commented, you know, he never thought, and I felt the same way, that we'd ever see Godzilla and Ghidra or Ghidorah on, on, in an American film on the big screen in an IMAX theater at that. Well, um, the key to that is basically, I mean, yes, I think Legendary heard everyone's complaints about the first movie. And uh, they decided, well, let's get more monsters. And Michael Doherty, who uh, directed the movie, is a complete, total Godzilla nerd. Mm. So, you know, when we interviewed him, which we'll play that interview at the end of the episode here, um, we just geeked out for an hour. It was just like, hey, Godzilla, yeah. So, you know, he, so if you watch this movie, there are so many little Easter eggs throughout Right, that call right. back to Godzilla movies of the past and uh, things like that. That um, you know, I've seen it three times. I still haven't caught all the Easter eggs yet. Yeah, you could really tell he was a huge uh, Godzilla fan with with all the stuff that um, was included in the film. And I mean, it was it was phenomenal. Um, let's kick it up to the satellite. Uh, Karen, uh, what did you think, Godzilla, King of the Monsters? Well, <laughs> <laughs> let, let me just say that although I, I enjoy Godzilla, I don't enjoy Godzilla nearly as much as you guys do. Mm. I only have one tiny shelf of kaiju stuff, so I I don't feel that uh, my my enjoyment or knowledge is quite as deep as you guys, but but I do enjoy Godzilla. I've got a little Godzilla on my desk at work, so so the love is there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have to say, I didn't feel um, uh, 
that the movie, it just didn't really hit me. I just didn't feel like there was a lot there, you know? And I, I think part of my frustration is that um, I really like the monster designs. I thought they were really cool. Um, like you said, like Mothra, it was like, wow, they just like really upgraded Mothra. She looked great. Right. Um, and then they sort of did like fire Rodan and they did, right, um, right. you know, at one point we got like burning Godzilla. And so there were a lot of like cool designs, but my problem with the thing is I couldn't see, oh, I almost said a bad word. I couldn't see <laughs> anything because, um, the way it, it was filmed, it was so dark and murky and then like so many close-ups and quick cuts and stuff. I wanted like the camera to pull back so I could see everything. And I just, I don't know, I was, I was having some frustration with that. And then overall, and I know it's like, you're not supposed to complain about the story in, in a Godzilla film generally, but I just, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I just couldn't care less about like, the people or what happened and I, I still feel like when the monsters aren't on the screen you need something to carry it like I really enjoyed Kong Skull Island because when Kong wasn't on the screen I still had people that were interesting you know you had Samuel Jackson and you had John C. Riley and other people and there was kind of an interesting story there so I was hopeful that this would be at least as interesting as that so I was a little I little let down that I thought you know I just don't care about any of these people um so on one hand i thought oh really cool character designs i like those i mm -hmm. thought those were great i just wish i could have seen them a little better um but at least we got more godzilla in this the first one i was like where the heck is godzilla um <laughs> so that was a plus so yeah so i'm i am yeah, kind of i probably feel about this like bobville about endgame or so i'm just kind of like <laughs> eh. Well, coincidentally, I think Bob has a tiny shelf of like Marvel figures and that <laughs> might clue into. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, no, I really, you know, I really wanted to like Endgame more. I mean, you know, I did not like Endgame, but but I will say watching Godzilla and I've seen it, like I say, three times so far. I think the pacing is much better than Endgame. I think Endgame has much longer build up to like a great final third of the movie but I think Godzilla just kind of like starts off bam and just goes all the way through you know almost non-stop and as far as the characters go um, you know I think I think Millie Bobby Brown did a great job with her role somebody said that they needed to put like shorts and a baseball cap on her but um, <laughs> but she did kind of cover that type of role but um, no, I mean, I, yeah, I thought she did a great job. Kyle Chandler, who played her father, um, you know, I mean, it's I think it's becoming Hollywood cliche these days to have the kind of family subplot in there. You know, it's like almost every movie has, you know, some some family that's having problems or has to get back together or has to find each other or save each other or whatever. But. I thought he did a good job. He kind of reminds me of Guy Williams a little bit. Hmm. Oh, I see that. In, in his look bit, and yeah. you know, some of his mannerisms. And, yeah. uh, and Guy Williams was like the dad as far as sci-fi goes. But um, for those who don't know Guy Williams, he was uh, John Robinson in Lost in Space. But, um, yeah. 
But yeah, I thought, like I said, I think the pacing was really good. I really liked um, Ken Watanabe as, as Dr. Sarazawa, his whole kind of story arc in there. And uh, the fact that, you know, he does sacrifice himself to save Godzilla. Unlike the original Dr. Sarazawa who sacrificed himself to kill Godzilla. Uh, so we had that little, that little twist there. And yeah, some of the others were just kind of there to uh, either drop the first F-bomb in a Godzilla movie or, or make a <laughs> snide comment here and there. But I think, uh, and I, I don't really know how I feel about the mom turning into an eco-terrorist and wanting to kill everybody, but yeah, I think she was forgiven a little bit too quick. But Yeah, it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It was like, well, my son was killed in the this monster rampage so now i will help get more people's children killed yeah that... <laughs> well see she she saw endgame and she really, really liked thanos I mean, so if if <laughs> carry if on the work depicted, of thanos if they had depicted her as being crazy that would be one thing but she was she was shown as being pretty rational and then you know she's working with them at the end which again like you're saying like they kind of forgave her pretty quickly so yeah maybe, that didn't maybe her mother's name me. was Martha why did you yeah. say Mothra <laughs> stone cold <laughs> silence ask, on that one well uh, you know uh, we only have so many minutes uh, <laughs> to, to discuss stuff so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dignify that with a reply no just kidding <laughs> Um, let me ask, what do you guys think of the Matthew Broderick Godzilla and then the, the Godzilla movie before this in San Francisco? Kieran, you kind of talked about that for a the minute. What? And then, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious because I know Bob is a huge Godzilla fan. Did, did, do you have anything good to say about the Matthew Broderick Godzilla, Bob? Absolutely nothing. Okay, so that that because we we never actually discussed this before. Well, was a, that like it was a huge a, letdown for you? It was a big pile of steaming blank <laughs> but I mean it wasn't Godzilla he wasn't Godzilla it was more Jurassic Park and Lost World with all the Godzilla baby raptor babies running around mm. it was just it was crap basically now if you ask me about the cartoon that was based on it that was actually much better was that more of a Godzilla? Uh, yeah, well, you know, type, Keith, who, Keith, who does Sci-Fi Japan with me, um, worked on that. He did storyboards, and he said uh -huh. that going into it, the crew was saying, "All right, you know, we we have to work with what we have." They knew that yeah. it was crap, and they said, first thing we're going to make him, we can't change the design, but we're going to make him more like Godzilla." And uh, Keith was telling me a story where. In the very first script, he breathes fire. Well, in the Emmerich and Roland, you know, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin movie, yeah, yeah, he never breathed fire. So the first thing Dean Devlin tells them is he doesn't breathe fire. And they came back with he's Godzilla. Kids are gonna want him see want to see him breathe fire. And he's like, oh, all right. <laughs> but I mean, he, you know, he and Emmerich had no clue whatsoever 
what Godzilla was all about or the character or anything else. And I think, you know, Toho had so many starts and stops with American Godzilla movies that they kind of just kind of gave in to a lot of it. Mm. And, you know, here are the big directors of, you know, Independence Day, and so they're going to make this great movie. So, you know, if they want to make Godzilla look different, if Patrick Totopoulos wants to uh, design his face like Shere Khan or whatever, which is what mm-hmm. he said he did, um, they said they reluctantly said, okay, let him go, and, you know, that's what they got. Wow. A steaming pile Ooh. of kaiju turd. Uh-huh. What did you think of that film, uh, Karen? Well, I mean, to be honest, I I think I saw it once <laughs> and have never seen it again because, like Bob said, it, it it just didn't feel like Godzilla. It just it was some generic dinosaur creature. Um, so, yeah, I don't have anything really to say about that one. And I think, you know, I'm like I mentioned for the 2014 movie, it was just frustrating because you didn't get a lot of Godzilla and then the enemies you got were not um, name kaijus, you know, they were mm-hmm. the mutos or whatever and, and it was right. like, oh man, I want to see him fight you know. You did get Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch though Oh, they acted in that film. Oh, yeah, yeah yeah, which they've been in a number of films now together I think, it's kind of weird. Yeah. yeah, so there you get your Marvel slant on there but I mean, I, 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 I thought it was okay. You know, I mean, the Godzilla scenes that were in there were good. There just wasn't enough of them. And uh, yeah, I just, and the, the big disappointing thing, and I'll clue you guys in on something, is if you watch it on DVD or Blu-ray, mm-hmm. when it got transferred, it was transferred so dark that the scenes Godzilla is in, you can barely even see them. It's like we're looking at shadows. But the way around that is it does look good in the 3D version. So you have to stick the 3D Blu-ray into a 3D player, play it on your TV, and turn the 3D off on the TV, and it looks great. Hmm. But um, but other than that, though, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there was some disappointment on that last movie, which, you know, makes me glad that this one made up for it. You, you think this one made up for the last one? Yeah, not for the Broderick one, but for, no, right, <laughs> for the 2014. Right, the... I think, yeah, it definitely made up for it. I think they did well. Yeah. Now, I do agree that they need to stop, and this isn't just uh, Godzilla, but, you know, all movies, monster movies these days, they gotta yeah. stop with the rain and the dark and all that. It's like, yeah, they need to. Uh, I mean, you look at the old Godzilla movies, and they're right there in broad daylight, and you can see everything, yeah. you know, in minute <laughs> right. detail, for better or worse. But um, you know, I mean, it might have looked better if Godzilla slid on his tail in the dark and the rain. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, you had Godzilla. Here he is. You know, you know what he looks like. I, I, we don't have to hide him. All right. I think myself personally for the Broderick film, Matthew Broderick, um, if they called it, you know, creature from creature from twenty thousand fathoms or uh, 
you know, Iguanosaurus or, you know, anything other than Godzilla. It wasn't a terrible movie all, all throughout. I mean, there, they, of course, there were, they had problems and some plot consistency issues. Um, but just it wasn't Godzilla. And I think that's what turned off a lot of people. Well, see, um, I kind of fans of. Yeah, I kind of beg to differ because when I went into it, when I saw it in theaters for the first time, I already uh-huh. knew it was not going to be Godzilla. And it was not that it was going to be a terrible Godzilla movie. So I went in there saying, well, you know, as long as it's a good monster movie, all right, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cut it slack. But it wasn't even that. I mean, it was just a bad movie throughout, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of this world is, you know, what you like, I don't have to like, and what I like, you don't have to like. And, you know, you can go ahead and talk about Martha again. That's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let me ask you guys this then. Um, Bear McQuarrie, I, I'm a big fan of the music in the films. Um, he had done uh, music for the, I love Battlestar Galactica, the reimagined uh, series that mm-hmm. was on sci-fi. Um, so a little bonus plug here, kids. If you haven't seen that, I'm not sure if it's streaming or, or uh, if you can get the dvd or whatever that's a great series and the music really led um to my appreciation of the acting and, and the storytelling and stuff that also helped in this film i felt um uh, it was um I, I love that they were able to use the godzilla theme mm-hmm. um the mothra theme um but he added a little extra to it uh, what did you guys feel about that was was the music uh, helpful in any way did it detract or was it you know neither here nor there well i was actually having a discussion with someone recently about that and mm-hmm. he was disappointed that they didn't have like the rodan theme and the ghidra theme in there it's not, and i'd say you know that was pro- that would probably more be more fan service because they're not as well known as you know the godzilla theme and and of course Mothra, you know, it's basically, right. you know, you have the, the Mothra theme that would normally be sung by the twin fairies, but, you know, instrumental version or whatever. So, um, so yeah, but I, I did enjoy the music. In fact, when we went down to the uh, press conference, um, I did get a little clip of Michael Doherty talking about the music and talking about Bear McQuarrie. So I'll play that nice. like really quick. Um, Mike, one of the one of my favorite parts of this movie. I mean, there's a lot of favorite parts, but the score. Oh, good! I like this, hearing that. <laughs> the score is absolutely stunning, and it's breathtaking. Can you talk about sort of working? Did you work closely with Bear on that, or did you give him free reign to kind of just really embrace all of these things that, like, there's just a lot of fun beats from like these this world from like years past uh, worked into the score. Yeah, both. I mean, I I worked very closely with him, but let him do his thing. Uh, I fell in love with. Bear's music from the uh, the revival of Battlestar Galactica, um, you know, roughly 03 through 08, I think it was. Uh, his music was so different uh, and bold. It didn't sound like your typical space opera music. It didn't sound like it was trying to be Star Wars or Star Trek. It was its own unique flavor. Uh, and he he had a really great way of sort of blending the modern and the old. You know, in the Battlestar music, he brought in instruments, um, you know, that are thousands of years old. 
and I wanted that flavor for this film. I didn't want the score for this to sound like every other tentpole movie. I wanted, I wanted it to sound like the music that would have existed when the Titans ruled the Earth. Uh, uh, you know, it's it. We we you, we kept talking about how it's a monster opera, uh, so that if you just sat and listened to the score with a pair of headphones and closed your eyes, um, it would transport you to an era when when Godzilla and his kind ruled the planet. Um, and it's a dream come true. He's he's extraordinarily talented. Uh, I would work with him again in a heartbeat. Um, and it was obviously very important to me to bring back Godzilla's theme and Mothra's theme. Uh, you know, those themes are just as iconic to me as Jaws and Star Wars, uh, even James Bond. Uh, so I'm just glad that we get to be the first American Godzilla film to, to bring those themes back. And Bear was the right man to do it. But yeah, no, I think you did it. I think you did a really good job. Yeah, it was it was great. Like I said, I, I really appreciated the uh, the nuances and the changes that were made to such familiar uh, themes. Well, they even redid the Blue Extra Cult song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was uh, good too, actually. Um, so let me uh, ask you this: uh, as far as uh, nostalgic moments um, did, did, you, did you find yourself going oh wow you know that's so cool they brought back Rodan or uh, you know like Karen had said that fire uh, kind of aspect they added to him um, uh, I, I like that Mothra had a stinger <laughs> yeah. and was able to actually fight back well I was, um, I was glad she didn't have like rays coming out everywhere like she did in later Toho films but Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, Stinger was okay though. The the only thing that I was a little disappointed with, uh, as far as the monsters go, is that uh, Gidra didn't have the familiar uh, cackle, for lack of a better yeah, word. Yeah, I was surprised. It's like, why would you not include that? It's it's such a hallmark of the character. Right. Yeah, I mean, I missed it. Too. I, I don't think they could do the high-pitched cackle, but they could have done like a lower, more guttural. Although one so, head did have one, have it. It was just very low and uh, more bass tone to it. Hmm. Um, I, I missed. The- each head had a different sound. Each head had a different personality. Um, like the middle head was like the alpha, and hmm. then the right head. His right head was, you know. More of an asshole. <laughs> and the his left head was kind of... Better bleep you know, that out! Kind of goofy. Yeah. <laughs> left head was kind of goofy. So you see the middle head kind of like bite at it or pull it back or whatever. I think I think the main thing that I missed about Ghidra, though, was... Uh, and I know this was just a byproduct of having guys manipulating the heads and necks with wires. But, you know, when I first saw Ghidra... Yeah, I saw him in Monster Zero before I saw him in Ghidra, the Three-Headed Monster. And uh, when the ruler of Planet X says, I give you Monster Zero, press the button, and you see Ghidra come flying over the mountain on Planet X, and his heads are just like flying all over the place, and the necks are just like going crazy, and lightning bolts are flying everywhere. I kind of miss that sort of chaotic movement because, I mean, yeah. you know, here he's... like drunken kung fu. Yeah, Like yeah. a force of nature. It can't even control itself. It's so, like, <laughs> ominous. 
Well, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's just like this crazy thing. It's like, because when I first, as a kid, when I first saw that, and saw him for the first time, and all this stuff's going on, I was like, God, this this is great. This is like the greatest thing I've ever seen. And uh, I probably still think that every once in a while when I watch Monsters. <laughs> and I did think it was very cool that they called him Monster Zero for most of the movie. I thought that was cool too. The lightning effects were really nice, I thought. Yeah, me too. That was very, when he was on top of that volcano, like commanding the other monsters to do his bidding, that was epic. I mean. With the cross in the foreground? Yeah. That's actually a call back to Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster. There's a there's a shot of Ghidra that's kind of shot through an arch. And the same type of thing. But uh, he ends up just cutting the arch out from beneath with his with his lightning and the thing collapses. But it's that's just a real iconic shot of Ghidra through the through the uh, the Japanese arch. And so mm. that's and I guess there is, when I saw uh, Michael Doherty down Monster Palooza, he did admit there was like a biblical meaning or reference or something with a cross in there. But, but my memory fades and I don't remember quite exactly what he said. But <laughs> what did you uh, what did you guys think of the fact that the other monsters besides the like hero monsters? Um, were were not like the familiar monsters we we know, but were you know new designs, new creatures. Sucked. <laughs> well, you could you could you could, you could blame uh, Toho's licensing department for that. Oh really? Well, monsters are very expensive. It ain't cheap to. I mean, just Godzilla, Ghidra, Mothra, and Rodan. I mean. Toho has actually A monsters and B monsters, and obviously all four of those are A monsters. Mm-hmm. And A are not cheap. So uh, you kind of get what you get. Um, That's interesting. I never thought of Rodan as an A monster. He was more of a B for me. Yeah, no, yeah, B. He had his own movie. Yeah, I think B they he consider did. He had like. His own movie, but. Yeah. I think B they consider like, uh, you know, like Varan or Angulus or. Uh, you know, one of those. Mm, yeah. Okay. I can. I maybe, can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's probably shades of gray as far as between the A's and B's and and how much they want to charge. Um, I actually have a couple clips. Maybe I can play um, of the actors talking about their favorite monsters in the movie. And the first one is uh, Millie Bobby Brown and O'Shea Jackson, who's actually the son of. Ice Cube. Ice Cube, yeah. And uh, he's, a, he's a big, big Godzilla fan as well. And then uh, Thomas Middletech, who played Sam Coleman, who was sort of like one of the uh, secondary scientists. But the three of them were at the press conference together, so I'll play their clip. And then I have another clip of uh, Bradley Whitford and Kyle Chandler talking about their favorite monsters in the movie. So let's see, let's start off with uh, the trio. So for a Godzilla fan, this film is kind of orgasmic because you have Very a monster much. mashup, yeah. right? Yep. So which Titan do you find most intriguing besides Godzilla? Yeah, honestly, 
I've been going the nice route and saying Mothra. I know, guys, but I got to after last night. I got to steal your th- Rodan, Rodan had the best entrance in the movie. Rodan is the oh best. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I honestly think that that's so incorrect. Whoa. You're so wrong. Like, don't you think that? Um, but don't you think that like Mothra behind the because waterfall? you got to touch. Because you got, because you. Yeah, don't be jealous. <laughs> don't be jealous that your parents were wow. scientists. You're Just so saying. Shady. You know. So shady. <laughs> um, no, I feel like I know. I I I think the Rodan had a pretty cool entry. You oh. know, because like. Yeah, I don't know. I think for me, Mothra, just because she's the only girl and she's such a hero. Like, she's one of, she's such a hero. She so just, clutch. she'll just be like, what up, guys? Who needs me? Like, she's like, he's my man. I need to go get my nails done. Yeah. She's great. She's got a couple of big, love her. big old nails. Oh, yeah. But she's so gorgeous. She's a pretty lady. I'd marry this her. Is- she's a pretty lady. All right. Well, let's move on. <laughs> Hi. Hi. So your co-workers were debating who was their favorite Titan aside from Godzilla. So your answer? We were talking. Can I? Uh, yes. Still, it's that Mastodon uh, thing that it never occurred to me uh, when we were shooting. Uh, we never saw him. Before. No, no, never saw him. I don't know. What, I don't know. What, I don't know. What, is there a name? Some people were applauding. Yeah, they might have thought at the entrance. Like snuffle up a guest or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. That was it for that. But yeah, the the big mammoth that was uh, I think they called him Behemoth. They called him a what? Behemoth. Oh, Behemoth. Yeah. yeah well, let me ask you guys. But if if you were to pick a another A list monster or B list monster to have included in this film, which one would you have picked? Don't everyone go at once. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I would have picked Megalon. Really? Ooh. Yeah, kind of tweaked him a little, updated him a little. Not Gigan? You know, I thought Gigan, um, but just Megalon has a special part, uh, place in my in my heart. So. Well, would you want Jet Jaguar in there then? Oh, now... You're playing with my emotions. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're getting into giant robots. Tugging on my Yeah, monster. but to have him do like the, the little disco talk, like, <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe Angiris or. I kind of thought he was going to be in the movie too from the trailers. I thought he was one of the yeah. ones coming up from underground, so. Yeah. I was a little disappointed that yeah. that was. I mean, not. they had that behemoth. They had the giant spider, and they had. Um, it was actually. I don't know if you caught it, but it was a mutated Muto was the third one. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That yeah. was that was interesting. Um, yeah, as far as A list or even B list monsters from the Toho films, um, I think they could have done some cool stuff with Hedera. No, that's a good one. I mean, you know, with modern CG effects, he could be all oozy and stuff. Sure. And uh, if not Hedera, hmm, maybe I would probably maybe go with Gigan. That's a good one too. Yeah. Um, well, who knows? There, there's going to be another Godzilla film. You know, at the end of the movie, they have that uh, piece oh. of. Oh, go ahead, Walker. Oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say. I also was thinking about um, King Caesar. Oh, that's a good one too. He's very goofy looking. 
Well, you know, they could have they could have tweaked him a little. Because yeah. I was thinking with Megalon, they, they would have tweaked Megalon a little and kind of like made him a little more svelte or, or give him some kind of a little zip like they did Rodan. And, and I don't particularly hate Rodan, but I don't love Rodan either. I don't know why they gave Rodan its own movie. But this fire you, Rodan. You, you really are kind of hating on Rodan tonight. I'm just, I'm just yeah, saying. I would say Not- you know, Rodan, <laughs> Rodan in 1956 was excellent. After that, they kind of shrunk his head down and made him look a little goofy and stuff. But the first Rodan back in 56, that was it. Well, that Bob, I'm it. not sure what you guys were smoking back in 56, but I respect your, uh, your opinion there. <laughs> I think the problem with Rodan, there's this, you, you just kind of feel like, well, he flies. Yeah. And it's sort of like, well, lots of other creatures can fly. A turtle can fly. In, yes. In, you know, and quite well. A- yeah, but that's and another that's another studio though. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm just saying it's not yeah. as impressive. It's just like with superheroes. It's like, what's your power? I can fly. And it's like, okay, yeah. and so, and <laughs> what else? What else you got? <laughs> so that's I I understand Larry's uh, Larry's uh, trepidations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, well, not, did you did you that. did you catch the numbers of the outposts in the movie? I, I knew there was an outpost thirty one. There was an out. Godzilla was at outpost fifty four. Oh. Rodan was in outpost fifty six. Okay. Mothra was in outpost sixty one. Very So tricky. those were all the years that those monsters first appeared in in a terror mm-hmm. film. That's cool trivia. What what outpost was the woolly mammoth at? Do you know? Zero. I don't know. Two thousand nineteen. He was just out. He was out in the middle of nowhere. He was out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it's laughing gas night. It, it is. It is. <laughs> so. Uh, so, like I was saying, they they found Ghidra's head at the end of the movie with all those flies. I can only imagine how bad it must have smelled in there. Oh yeah. Do you think Do you think they're going to try to do a a cloning thing, like a Jurassic Park thing? Are they going to go the Mecha route and and do a Mecha King Ghidra? I mean, I, th- I think they're going the Reptilicus route. Oh. Because you know they found a, a little piece of Reptilicus's tail, and he was able to regenerate yeah. into a complete monster. And of course, yeah. when Godzilla bit off one of his heads to begin with, mm-hmm. um, and that was kind of the goofy head, um, he <laughs> was up there on the on the mountain and grew, grew the head back. So there's no reason why he couldn't regenerate a whole monster from that one head. I wonder which head they found Alpha, Beta, or Goofy? Well, see, that's the thing. And I thought that was an excellent scene, by the way. Mm-hmm. When you see, you know, Godzilla basically was supposed to blow up. He's got yeah, this nuclear. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden at the end, you know, from all the smoke and ashes, you see Ghidra's head come up. And you think, oh, Ghidra's still alive. And then you realize it's because Godzilla's got it in his mouth. Yes, that and was he's flinging awesome. it around. But yeah, we really don't know which head that was. Maybe it was the alpha head, and it's just gonna, you know, be determined to regenerate. You never know. 
I, I enjoyed, and like I said, I watched this with a nostalgic eye, but I enjoyed the little twist because, right, the fire Godzilla and you're thinking, oh, God, he's going to go nuclear like he did, you know, before. And then Junior absorbed the radiation and became the next iteration of Godzilla. But there was no Junior or baby Godzilla in this film that we saw. And it was like, oh, God. He's, you know, and same with the oxygen destroyer where Ghidra survived and, and Godzilla and and I'm like, oh my God, you know, where's 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 this gonna go? Godzilla's, you know, the oxygen destroyer. Well, you I, know, I gotta I've, say, go I really liked the uh, the undersea city. That was an interesting element with the ancient city. Yeah, um, that's that another one you have to look at really close. What's that, Bob? You have to look at it a little closer. You have to look at that underwater city really close. Oh, 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 oh. Um, there's even a familiar statue down in there. And I probably no one caught it, but it was uh, mm. Pazuzu. Pazuzu? Pazuzu. <laughs> you don't know who Pazuzu is? Pazuzu. It, uh, oh, that sounds know. familiar. Yeah. Nephew to Erectus? <laughs> no. Think Linda Blair. Oh, okay. Pazuzu oh, okay. was the demon that, that mm -hmm. uh, possessed Linda Blair in The Exorcist. In fact, at the very beginning of The Exorcist, the first opening shot is of a statue of Pazuzu, and that's the statue that's down in the underwater city. I'm not sure I understand the connection between The Exorcist and Godzilla, but okay. Well, it's just the fact that Michael Doherty's a big horror fan, so uh, he just snuck that in. But the sad thing is the nuclear weapon destroyed the whole thing so yeah it's all gone now yeah so if Godzilla ever needs to heal again he's got yeah. nowhere to go Where's yeah he well go? he just has to go eat another nuke <laughs> but that was a good way of uh, you know making him look more you know giving him those oh, really yeah. cool backs back fins again you know the spines they amped him up I loved how the before he shot a blast it would start at the bottom of the tail and go and like ramp up to it but where was Minya? Uh, I don't know, lass. I don't know. He probably blew up in that underwater explosion. <laughs> I don't know. Didn't they find an egg somewhere? Yeah, that's supposed to be like Mothra again. Another Mothra, yeah. Oh, okay. Mothra. That was kind of a nice little homage they played to the peanuts or uh, the twins showing that mm -hmm. picture. Well, I mean, uh, you, you caught what that all led to, right? Yeah, that she had a twin. Yeah, because if you see, yeah, because when you're watching it, there's Chen, who is on the, you know, she's in the whole movie, basically. But also, they cut over to where Mothra's getting ready to hatch out of the waterfall. And one of the scientists, uh, and they, it was Dr. Ling, walks up, takes her hood off, and it's her twin. Mm -hmm. right. So the twins are there. They're just in different divisions of Monarch. They haven't started singing yet. No, no. <laughs> Man, you guys got me thinking about Jet Jaguar now. <laughs> I think tomorrow when I go to work, I'm not going to talk to anyone. I'm just going to like mime and make that sound and see what people And every think. once in a while, I'll just yell out, punch, punch, punch. <laughs> Um, so there's rumors that, of course, the next movie will be Kong versus Godzilla. Mm -hmm. ain't, ain't no rumors about that. They just finished filming it. 
Okay. So then how excited are you guys for, for that? Well, Bob just passed out. Go so ahead. I'll answer. Go ahead. I'm letting other people talk. Uh, I don't I, want to I, mop I, monopolize the Godzilla episode. So. <laughs> I, I'm very excited. Um, I, I like both Kong, Kong Skull Island and, and this one, so it'll be interesting. Um, the height difference, I, I don't know how they're going to work that out. Um, well, they made Kong pretty pretty huge in Skull Island. Well, he was yeah, huge true. in Skull Island, and they even mentioned in the movie that he was still very young. Mm. So he still got a lot of growing to do. And that took place back in, what was the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. So he's yeah. had, you know, 40 years to grow. Who knows how tall he or how big he is now? God, that's amazing to me to, to say, oh, the 70s, that's 40 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's just 10 years ago. What? I yeah. know. It's like, it's like it was only yesterday. <laughs> I rode my bike to the mini mart and bought myself one of those Sundays with the wooden spoon. <laughs> Larry still has his white polyester suit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's come to that part of the show where we have our... Um, Sensor sweep? Sensor sweep. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this week, we're going to uh, kick it over to Chief Engineer Bob to share some more tidbits with us from his trip to Godzilla Land. Godzilla Land. It was actually Hollywood, but it seemed like Godzilla Land because everywhere well, we went, I mean, <laughs> billboards and bus stops and there was even a construction site that had the four posters like all the way along the construction site fence wow um, dude you sent that picture of the godzilla popping up through the building that the was cin- like the cinerama dome yeah yeah they had him popping up and i could i we didn't get a picture of him at night but mm. in the mm. dark they had this like searchlight or beam that came out of his mouth with smoke oh, and it was like yeah it was like his, man. like he's shooting his breath into the sky like in the poster and um, I, you know it was just so much fun just to be totally engulfed in Godzilla I mean we knew we were going for a press conference I mean for a press screening on Friday night and this was like mm-hmm. two weeks before the movie came out um, and we knew we were going to go to the red carpet premiere on Saturday but we didn't know that the whole city was going to be decked out as you know decked out like Godzilla. And then every once in a while, you'd see some little Elton John somewhere for a rocket man or whatever. But um, but it was Godzilla everywhere. And so, yeah, we Friday night, we went to the uh, press screening, which was at just one, a local theater there. But the theater was all decked out. They had murals along the escalators. They had the big cutout letters uh, display. They had the stairs. Um, I'll, I'll send pictures to Karen. She can put some of them up. Um, the stairs were all decked out, Godzilla. They had the, along the snack bar and the concession stands and the, uh, and the ticket stands. It was all Godzilla. So it was everywhere. Yeah, the, the things yeah. you sent us when you were texting were amazing. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And then, like I say, the, the next day, we got to go to the, uh, 
they basically blocked the entire street off in front of Groman's Chinese Theater. Mm. And uh, couldn't get in until, you know, unless you're press or whatever. And they had the sidewalk across the street was partitioned off so people could actually crowd in along the sidewalk there. And then they had the, the limos come in and right in front of Groman's Chinese, they had this big, uh, basically, backdrop. And above the backdrop, people that they allowed in were sitting up there. And uh, they would bring all the stars through. Behind that, which normally is where all you go and check out all the footprints of the stars, um, that was a reception, which uh, was really nice. We got to go to the reception. And uh, we caught up with a friend, Chris Mowry, who uh, used to be a writer for IDW Comics. And he wrote uh, the Godzilla comics and Transformers and even My Little Pony and whatever else. Um, he is now working in the marketing department of Toho down in LA. So we were talking to him quite a bit. Of course, we asked if they were gonna continue the movies after Godzilla versus Kong and he and the rest of the Toho people that were there all have the same answer. Well, depends on how this one does. <laughs> so, and then you know, we, we ran into uh, to Kyle Chandler, and we talked to him for a little bit. And uh, we also ran into this other guy, Gareth Edwards. Uh, he was hanging out there. Oh, we nice. Got to talk to him a little bit. And, uh, and then we went in and we saw the movie, and it was, you know, they had this huge, fat Godzilla suit <laughs> some guy trouncing around in that and it had a bow tie on because of course it was you know formal premiere <laughs> and so that when they kicked off the movie Michael Doherty was up there with Godzilla standing next to him with a bow tie and you know welcoming people and talking about the movie Doherty was not Godzilla and uh, it was just a blast and then Sunday we got to go to the uh cast and crew interviews. So uh, we got to, uh, yeah, our name was in the hat and we ended up interviewing uh, uh, Ken Watanabe, which was pretty cool. In fact, uh, that will be up on scifijapan.com very soon, along with other coverage of, uh, of the premiere and, and our excursions. And then uh, we also, when we got back, we were able to interview Michael Doherty for like an hour on the phone. And uh, he was great. That's the interview we're gonna play following this episode. And uh, it's about, uh, we'll see how much I have to trim, but you know, probably about 45 minutes, so. Um, cool. Put us on pause, get a snack, come on back and, and listen to the Doherty interview. <laughs> but before we get to that, just about almost exactly a month from now. Oh, yes. We're coming down to planet Earth. Once again, <laughs> I mean, I was down in Hollywood, but all three <laughs> of us are coming down to planet Earth. And uh, you guys want to tell everyone what we're going to do once we get there? Uh, share the news. We're going to be invading Earth, taking over all the world governments, <laughs> and imposing our will. Oh, People no, of Earth, attention. Attention. No, that's, <laughs> Look that's for later your sun for a warning. That's, that's like November. I think in oh. July, <laughs> what we'll be doing in July, July 7th to be exact, 
is appearing at Creatures Con in San Ramon at the San Ramon Marriott. Yes, indeed. Yes, last year it was just Commander Larry and Chief Engineer Bob, but this year I actually get to go this time. I don't have to stay in the satellite. So <laughs> this I'm this year excited. this year is the real deal. Well, yes. you know, we've been around for a year. We have bigger budgets. We can afford to bring Karen out of the satellite, you know, a little more often. So, hey, we thought it's a Sunday Sunday. and we'll splurge a little. So if you're in the San Ramon area, uh, more importantly, at the San Ramon Marriott between 10 a.m. and 8 p.m. California. It's, it's California. Yeah, we should all sunny California. California. That's true. Beautiful golden state. Yes. If, if you're in San Ramon, uh, Canada, that will not help. Uh, and if you're in Quebec, you need to be in California and uh, come by, grab a prize, say hello, uh, meet the crew and enjoy uh, all the programming they have. They have some great guests. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Veronica Carlson of Hammer Film fame will be there. Uh, of course, along with Lord Bloodraw and uh, John Stanley from Creature Features fame, they're also going to have the West Coast premiere of House of the Gorgon uh, with a lot of vendors and, and other guests and, and spooks and, and uh, who knows, uh, aliens and, and whatnot will be there. Uh, no one from Planet uh, uh, 9, 10, or 11 will be there. Only oh, Planet 8. Thank God. Yeah, so... But if you want to know more about it, not only can you go to CreaturesCon.com, but you can tune into our episode coming up that'll be live on June 22nd, and we're going to talk to Lord Bloodraw, friend of the show, and also Tom Wersch, who's the sort of Creature Features curator. Mm. We're going to talk all about Hammer Films, and we're going to preview Creatures Con, and it'll be a whole lot of fun. Yay. <laughs> so Sounds like fun. It's a monstrous June and a creature-filled July. And uh, <laughs> so I guess without further ado, we will jump into the interview with Michael Doherty. That's conducted by myself and Keith Aiken. And Keith and I do a little website called Sci-Fi Japan, which is at scifijapan.com. So uh, you can see more about tons of stuff about Godzilla King of the Monsters, about the premiere, about the press junket that we went on, and now you can enjoy listening to Michael Doherty talk about his film. So tell us about your life growing up and what influenced you into getting into filmmaking. Uh, well, I mean, I grew up in, in the 80s, so uh, uh, it, was, it was sort of the early days of, of cable television, and that proved to be a really great sort of uh, uh, film school in a way because so many studios were just kind of digging everything they could out of their libraries and throwing it up on cable TV and then Godzilla films were a big part of that. So every Saturday morning, my, my ritual was wake up, make a big bowl of cereal, watch the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla cartoon. <laughs> Funny enough, that was the first introduction uh, but the Godzilla cartoon was immediately followed by the old movies. So, um, Saturday mornings and afternoons were sort of like Godzilla film school for me. 
And so between that and watching the black and white Universal monster movies, the Star Wars films, naturally, I mean, the 80s were such a great era to grow up uh, watching movies because so many of the classics that I think still serve as the, the foundations for our franchises today got their start then. Uh, the alien films were a massive influence. Um, and then, you know, the Amblin movie shortly after that. So it was like, it was like every, every year of the eighties was just like the perfect, there were, there was a perfect movie to be introduced to. And, and Godzilla was just a, a massive part of that foundation. Yeah, no, totally. Definitely. I mean, I understand growing up with, say with the eighties, um, obviously Empire Strikes Back and Raiders and everything. Um, do you, do you remember like the first Godzilla movie you saw and do you have any favorites from when you were growing up? You know, I don't remember the first one I saw. I mean, I was so young. I was three or four years old when I, when I first met him. So, uh, it's fuzzy. That's, that's the thing. Um, I mean, I definitely know it was from the Showa era. Uh, and then, uh, somewhere along the line, like I, 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 I saw the 50, the original 54 film much later. And I remember being jarred by it because I had been used to seeing Godzilla portrayed as more of a heroic figure that to see him as the villain uh, was actually like a little bit upsetting as a kid. Um, but, uh, but I understood it and it made sense. But yeah, I wish I could trace it back to a specific original film, but they all kind of blurred together uh, back then. But I remember... Um, I remember really loving the the original uh, solo films for Rodan and Mothra. Uh, that that pops in my head pretty clearly because I remember my cousins introducing me to them, saying, "Oh, if you loved Godzilla, you should check out Mothra. You should check out Rodan." And uh, and then obviously when they came together in Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. That was like that was like my Avengers moment as a kid. The idea that I was going to see, the, you know, all of them wrapped up into one film. It was just, it made a lasting impression. No, definitely. I know my first was like uh, Godzilla versus the Thing, and then I think mm -hmm. after that was Monster Zero. And uh, I just have vivid memories being a kid, and uh, when the alien said, when the guy Planet X says, you know, I give you Monster Zero, and you just see Ghidorah flying over the mountains. With his head's flying all over the place and lightning coming out everywhere. And uh, I was hooked. That yeah. Was he knows how, he knows how to make an entrance. No, no, definitely. <laughs> yeah. It's funny yeah I love that you actually call him monster zero for the good portion of uh, King of the monsters. Well, it's such a cool name. You know, there's something about it. It just rolls off the tongue. It sounds like, sounds like a really good, like band name. Um, but I thought it, it only made sense that Monarch wouldn't have, uh, or, or that they that they would use a sort of official like a moniker for him because they didn't know his actual identity. You know that I, I love the idea that it took a mythologist that it took uh, Zhang Ziyi's character to sort of unlock what his origins might have been. It's almost like naming the creature is what ultimately gives you some power over it. So to to know its name to say its name has to be earned. You can't just you know blurt it out there. So Monster Zero is the perfect code name for an unidentified creature. Yeah, I guess it would be hard to just yeah, like generally come up with a name like Ghidra. Let's just call him Ghidra. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? But but that does feel like something that you would find 
in some sort of archive or in some sort of like oh, yeah. ancient text. Oh, that's great. And then, uh, so how did you, now we know you, you did trick or treat and you did Krampus and then how were you approached to do Godzilla? Was it something that you uh, heard about and asked to get into? No, I mean, I really lucked out. I mean, I think I could probably trace it back to like an eighth, eight, eight year old birthday wish if I had to, but, um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, yeah, I had finished Krampus and was just taking a break and I had dinner with Alice Garcia, uh, the legendary executive who worked on the 2014 film. And that's when he mentioned that, uh, Gareth wasn't going to be returning for the next chapter because he was finishing Star Wars. And, um, uh, I think I said yes before he even finished asking if I was interested because, again, it's just, it was just a lifelong dream. I mean, I was the nerd that used to sit there with my Godzilla Shogun Warrior watching the old movies mm-hmm. and would imagine how fun it would be to make a Godzilla film. And it's always been in the back of my mind. Uh, and so I very quickly said yes, and that got the ball rolling. I went home that night and just start, started brainstorming what the movie could be and wrote up a very quick page and a half long treatment that really got the ball rolling. So uh, how many of the ideas you came up with when you were eight years old actually made it to the film? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't remember the I don't remember the idea that the eight year old had. Unfortunately, I mean, uh, I wouldn't be I wouldn't. Although I, I think I think he's the one who's still really in charge of my life currently. Uh, if I'm looking at my resume, they, they do, it does feel like the wish list of an eight year old. Right. No, that's great. Uh, could you tell us like um, how far in development was the film when you got attached to it? And I know Max Bornstein had written the first film and had done like a treatment for this one? Was that before you came aboard? And if so, how much did you end up changing it as you went along? Uh, Well, it's really funny you mentioned that because Legendary said pretty much it's a blank slate. Do what you want, come to us with what you think the ideal Godzilla movie could be, Uh, which was great, you know, just to be able to like jump in fresh and, and have the freedom to do what you want. They did say, you know, that they had secured the rights to uh, Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, uh, which again, it just sort of felt like a dream come true because those would have been the creatures that I would have selected anyway. Uh, so to know that they had already done the hard work of securing those rights uh, just brought a smile to my face. Uh, but, and I knew they had done some development, but ultimately decided to start with a blank page. But what's funny is at the end of the very long road of making this film, uh, you enter a process called uh, credit arbitration, which is when the Writers Guild very smartly steps in and decides who what, what, what writers get credit on the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's always a difficult process for writers because everybody would love to get credit, but often scripts go through so, so many incarnations and pass from so pass get passed around from uh, among so many hands that it can be very difficult to determine who actually gets credit for it. And so it was only in that process did Zach Shield, my writing partner, and I get to read uh, Max Bornstein's original treatment for the movie, and we were shocked at how similar it was. <laughs> um, 
like it was eerie, you know, it was almost like, did somebody go back in time and write this? Because the basic beats were all there. The idea of uh, uh, a group of eco-terrorists who kidnap a monarch scientist who had created a device to influence the creatures who then want to use it to their own um, for their own purposes, like all the broad strokes were basically there. I think I think King Ghidorah was in it too. I'm not so sure about Rodana Mothra, but we we read that and thought, well, listen, like even though we didn't get to read this at the beginning of the process, and even though this didn't influence our creative choices in any way, clearly Godzilla, who was probably in charge of things, ultimately wanted the story, wanted this to be the story. Uh, so we reached out to Max and said, Hey, it just makes more sense. Why don't we just split the story credit? Uh, which thankfully is, is just, it just makes things easier. That means that there's no fight for the credit as much as people get to act like mature adults and decide for themselves. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was interesting cause we didn't, we weren't influenced to our knowledge by the first round of creative development, but it just kind of naturally evolved that way. Interesting. So you said it was a clean well, slate the, when you when you came in, but um, obviously there was a kind of a world established already by uh, by the first movie and as well as Kong yeah. Island. So um, I know there's things that seem to have carried over, like the Hollow Earth theory. Uh, obviously, Monarch. You know, a couple of the characters like Dr. Sarazawa. So did you kind of have a, a choice of what to carry over and continue on with? Or did they say, you know, we need this and this in place to lead to eventually to the next movie? Uh, again, like we had free reign. There were no mandates, but I loved the mythology that uh, the 2014 film and Skull Island set up. Like I love Monarch. Monarch is the kind of organization that I would... I would drop everything to go work for an organization like Monarch, you know, as, as, as much as I love making movies about cryptozoology and parapsychology and all that stuff, the concept of being able to actually do that as a career. I mean, I would fake my death to go work for a secret organization uh, that tracks down giant monsters, UFOs, ghosts, what have you. Um, so, the the idea of bringing you know focusing more on Monarch uh, was really appealing. I loved uh, Dr. Sarazawa and Dr. Graham from the first film. Uh, as, as as much fun as Aaron Taylor Johnson's sort of GI Joe adventures were, the idea of the scientists who actually have some concept of Godzilla and and I think a respect and admiration for him that made me love those characters more. So. Mm-hmm. I felt like if we were going to bring anybody back, it made sense to bring back uh, those two because they had a very grounding presence. They felt like very real people to me. And I like the idea, too, of focusing more on the scientists in this film uh, instead of the soldiers. You know, we've seen so many tentpole movies where, you know, it's, oh, the former munitions expert is the hero or that soldier's the hero when the scientists tend to be the supporting players and I wanted to flip things a little bit and sort of pick up where Indiana Jones left off and say like, well, no, scientists can be very heroic. Scientists can be very cool and willing to put their lives on the line uh, for the mission just as much as, you know, your average superhero or soldier. So we wanted to focus more on Monarch. Uh, 
and sort of the wish fulfillment of a well-funded secret organization that studies monsters because again like there's something fun about getting invited behind the curtain to see uh, a place like that to see their headquarters and their weapons and their vehicles um, and uh, yeah beyond that like there wasn't a lot of mythology that we were told to use that was suggested but it was I was completely in sync I mean they did such a great job at establishing that world and that mythos that it was a natural it was a natural fit to sort of take the ball and run with it yeah i thought the uh hollow earth theory was kind of interesting Mm -hmm. i love that stuff i love hollow earth theory because i mean i think i think it's worth investigating further uh i love that the first two films tap into genuine theories about or, or alternate histories um, they, they tap into genuine theories about hollow earth, lost civilizations, you know, um, uh, cryptid creatures that might be in hibernation. Uh, I feel like that's, that those are the kinds of like almost like Jules Verne esque subjects that we don't see enough in tentpole movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, it was an honor to be part of a, a franchise that is willing to go there. I know, Stu, it allows the monsters to, gives them more freedom to kind of pop up anywhere. You get a character like that mm-hmm. swim, you know, it takes them a while to get from point A to point B. But by using this hollow earth, you can have him uh, more readily get to where he needs to get to. I mean, yeah, I mean, Godzilla, and by the way, it means Godzilla could pop up in the middle of Albuquerque if he wanted to. You know, because theoretically, like, there are tunnels below any you know even the even our land masses theoretically he, he could he doesn't have to pop up out of the ocean anymore he could he could pop up anywhere if you embrace the hollow earth theory as could it as could any number of other creatures so you don't have to have a really long swimming scene like in uh, Godzilla versus <laughs> no, I, think there, I think there is something there is something visually interesting about seeing Godzilla swimming up in Mississippi oh, that's true yeah. And say so you talk about a well-funded like scientific organization. Um, in this film, Monarch seems much more beefed up than in the 2014 film, and particularly in the uh, Kong Skull Island, where they were kind of begging for uh, you know uh, the senator's financial support. Um, so was that your decision to kind of make them uh, like you know much? I guess to give them much higher technology and um, much more freedom to kind of do what they need to do. Yeah, yeah, again, I mean, I, I, I love the concept of Monarch. Um, it would be my dream job, so I wanted to create sort of the best version possible. At the same time, I felt like the 2014 film, uh, even when they introduced Monarch, it felt like we were only seeing a glimpse of it. It felt like we were just sort of skimming the surface. Uh, and... Even then, though, it felt like they had the rack together. It felt like they had a fair amount of resources because, you know, when you first see the Muto cocoon uh, at the nuclear power plant, like, obviously, there's dozens of workers and security guys, and they've already got this thing contained using some pretty high-tech equipment. So, clearly, there's an infrastructure. Um and in my mind, they've probably been pretty well organized and well funded for, for quite a while. I imagine that since 1954, uh, there's been some support for them. But I do think that after the events of 2014, you know, some additional checks got written, whether they be from private organizations or various governments, because they are, they are meant to be a multinational 
organization. It's not like they're loyal to one country or another. I think they probably operate like the UN. The United States probably wrote the biggest check um, and donated the most resources. But uh, they're probably being well-funded and supplied by, you know, several countries. Cool. So when you, uh, when you were writing the script or the treatment, did you have any of the actors in mind when you created the characters or just create the characters first and then go and find who would fit the roles? I usually just create the characters first. Uh, you know, again, besides Ken Watanabe and Sally Hawkins, right. uh, all the other characters are, oh, and David's right there, and all the other characters are, are original. So, you know, had sort of archetypes in mind, but no no faces at the very beginning. That, that all sort of happens as it, as it evolves. Great. Yeah, I know. Um, um, out. Okay. Go ahead, Bob. It's okay. <laughs> I was to say, Millie Bobby Brown did a great job in the film, uh, especially since her character carries a lot of it. How was she to work with? Oh, she was amazing. Uh, working with kids can always be very tricky. You've got limited hours. Uh, obviously, kids, just because they're younger, tend to have less experience than your adult actors. But she came on and she was like an old pro. Uh, she's an interesting balance because she's, she's very much an old soul. She's very wise, uh, but she still has the vibrancy and uh, the innocence and the enthusiasm of a kid. So uh, it was just fun to have her on set. Like you knew you were going to have a good day when Millie was there because she just brought so much joy and life. Um, and she was also... Uh, like myself, she's very much a prankster. So once we were done sort of pranking each other, we sort of combined our evil forces and started to uh, target some of the other cast members. <laughs> uh, she had mentioned at the press conference that um, she had not seen Godzilla movies before getting the role and that you had kind of like introduced her to the character. Could you talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that? Yeah, it was fun. Again, she's young. Uh, so I had to sort of preach the word of Godzilla to her. And I think that's part of the joy of the character is that he has this multi-generational appeal. Um, I'm sure you guys can relate, but whether, you know, whether it's your own kids or nieces or nephews, there's such a joy to watching their eyes light up when they first meet the guy. And, and I typically find that there's like an instant recognition and embrace of the character. I know whether it's because as kids, we innately love dinosaurs and monsters, but um, with Millie, uh, we bonded over uh, a mutual love of animals and, and nature. Uh, she has many pet turtles and lizards and dogs. Uh, and so do I, like, you know, I've, I've got a ball python, a dog, so many different animals. And, um, uh, and so it was, it was, it was fun to sort of teach her about the message of Godzilla, the idea that underneath all the, the monster fights and everything else, that there was a very potent and heartfelt message about our relationship to the natural world and our relationship to nature. So I think, I think that's what really won her over more than anything, you know, to learn that it's not just about, you know, monsters beating the crap out of each other, but that there's a spirit there. So she caught on to it pretty quick. Hey, she caught on to it instantly. Great. I know um, Ken Watanabe, he had like an incredible story arc in, in this film compared to, he was kind of in the background in the 2014 film. Um, how important was it to make a Sarazawa such a key character in the movie? 
Well, again, he was my favorite character from the first film. I think because Sarah, I identify the most with Sarazawa. Uh, he's the character that seeks to understand Godzilla, uh, and I think has uh, a deep, deeply held respect for the creature. And uh, I know that when I write Sarazawa, I can feel a lot of my own voice in him. You know, he's he understands that the world fears the creature. Uh, and he's doing his best to sort of uh, repair that relationship between humans and Godzilla, knowing that Godzilla is the key to some potentially some form of coexistence between man and monster. Uh, so it, it was important to me to flesh out that character um, because he was my favorite, but also because as an Asian American, it was important to me to uh, make sure that we his character was fully fleshed out this time and that he wasn't just there to deliver exposition, you know, but that the idea that he has an actual arc and a very fitting finale, uh, with Godzilla, like that was, that was vital to me. No, definitely. I mean, the, his finish basically in the film was kind of a lot like the original Sarah's out in the first film, kind of the connection. Yep. Between that was, that was, that was very intentional. Yeah. Yeah. In my mind, this incarnation of Sarazawa is making up for the mistake that the original Sarazawa made. Mm-hmm. Even though you did work nice the oxygen circle. destroyer in there. I'm sorry? I said even though you worked the uh, oxygen destroyer into the movie. I did, but the oxygen destroyer is, is uh, an even bigger mistake. You know, its use is an even bigger mistake in this film than I think in the 54 movie because it only makes things worse. Mm-hmm. It was a nice touch that it did not affect Ghidorah. Yeah. I mean, and that logically, you know, that would make sense given Ghidorah's origins. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, thank you for making him a space monster again. He wasn't even that in the Japanese world. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'll say one of the things I liked about with, I'll say with Sarazawa too was that in the 2014 film, when Godzilla's approaching Hawaii, he like rushes up on the deck of the ship so he can see him for the first time. Yeah, which is exactly what I would do, by the way. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But I thought it was great that he gets the moment where he can actually touch Godzilla in this film. And it was kind of a nice, again, a full circle for his character that, you know, he he got that. And by the way, he's the first character in Godzilla's 65-plus year history to do that, to actually affectionately touch Godzilla. You know, I wanted that sort of, um, you know, God touching the hand of Adam kind of moment and with between Godzilla and a, and a human, because we never see that Godzilla makes no physical contact with people unless he's stepping on them, you know? And I know there's a, there's a very brief moment uh, in one of the later films where a character, I think climbs up on top of Godzilla and, and shoots him with a tracking gun. Right. But again, like that's, <laughs> But doesn't doesn't quite have the same uh, tone. So to to have a moment where a meaningful physical gesture is made between man and monster, uh, I thought it was time to finally do that. Yeah, it's very different than the scene that you were talking about before, where the character actually hated Godzilla and was putting the tracking on so they could find a way to later yeah. kill it. Yeah, yeah. Usually, usually that sort of affectionate moment is reserved for Kong. You know what I mean? Like. It, it's always it's always Kong who gets to sort of bridge that gulf between humans and monster. Uh, but I thought it was time to finally see that side of Godzilla as well. 
So, so other than well, if uh, I if I may, I wanted to ask you. Oh, go ahead, Bob. No, go on. Uh, I was going to ask about the uh, casting of Kyle Chandler because um, obviously he's really well known for you know Bloodlines and Friday Night Lights, but he was also in Peter Jackson's King Kong, and because of you hiring him, he'll now be in Godzilla vs Kong. So it's uh, so I was wondering how that all played together. Uh, well, I really I had a very specific kind of actor in mind for for the character. I uh, I wanted someone who felt like they that you would find out chopping wood on a farm, like someone who had a genuine ruggedness, who wasn't just another pretty actor face. Um, and as terrible as this might sound, I didn't want to get uh, a European actor to once again play an American. <laughs> like I, you know what I mean. Like I wanted an authentic, uh, an authentic actor who had calluses on his hands, who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty, and and Kyle is he is that guy. You know, like he he goes camping on weekends. He loves taking his trailer out with his family and just being out in the woods in the wilderness. And he really was the character, you know, the character is this sort of uh, rugged outsider who's pulled along on this adventure with a bunch of nerds, uh, somewhat reluctantly so. And, and Kyle kind of felt like that. Kyle kind of felt like, the, you know, a bit of an outsider who was a little uneasy and unsure of all the sort of the, the high tech hijinks going on around him. Um, but it was, it was important to me to sort of have, uh, an iconic, strong male character to sort of be included in sort of the larger diversity of the cast. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he's, uh, let's say he does bring across that kind of like, that, uh, that kind of rugged, um, I guess, gravitas? <laughs> Word yeah, and he's, he's just like, he's just a great everyman. Do you know what I mean? He, he feels like he could be anybody's dad. Well, he kind of has that look, though, yeah, exactly. sort of a classic Hollywood actor. Yeah, exactly. But he's not he's not your typical square jaw, as I call them. Right. That's great. So um so other than the Sarazawa character and the uh the twins which are kind of worked into the movie, were there any other human characters from the Japanese films you would have wanted to try to fit in or maybe fit into a future film? Not yet. I mean further down the road, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I do have to admit that I, I think the concept of a potential telepathic connection between the creatures fascinates me. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, as a fan of psychic ability in general, uh, I, I, I love that little development in the classic films. The idea that some humans might be have a sort of emphatic connection to the creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, but it has to be earned, you know, that's, that's the kind of, you know, concept that you have to sort of develop over time. What I love about the Godzilla films is that, you know, they start very real, you know, going back to the 54 movie, it feels like something that could happen. And as the series evolved, they, they started introducing more and more fantastical and outlandish concepts. Uh, but they didn't do it all at once. Again, it, it took time to get there. So, maybe there's a character to be drawn from the classic films that has that ability. I don't know. You know, even, even the twins, 
you know, if you're paying attention and you happen to catch on to our little reference towards them, right. you're sort of being eased into the concept a little bit. You know, not everyone, not everyone knows who the twins are. The fans do, obviously. Uh, yeah. I, so I think if you're going to introduce the idea of the twins, you kind of have to do it delicately. And it's more fun that way, too. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you had yeah, one character I, that uh, was already established, and then suddenly there's that kind of twist that, oh, she's part of the big bigger. And by the way, not everybody catches it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys really? did. Oh, no, definitely. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 and by the way, that's, and that's intentional. It's, it's done in a way that is meant to go over some people's heads so that they have an excuse to go back and see it again. So you talked about going back and seeing the film again. Uh, we were lucky enough. We, so we attended the press screening on Friday and then saw the premiere on Saturday. So oh, wow. Saturday allowed us, yeah, Saturday allowed us to kind of like really start looking for uh, little Easter eggs and hidden things. And right. you packed a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First of all, I'm impressed that you guys saw it, what, twice in one week? So twice, <laughs> twice I'm going to assume that means you, you liked it enough to do that. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and then, so tell me some of the Easter eggs. I'll throw a question at you. What, what, what did you catch? Well, I think Peter first off was the one, uh, yeah, Oh, you caught them. Off. Wow. You're the first one. You're the first one to bring them up. Really? <laughs> yep. Um, yep. There's the Monarch Outpost for from, like, film dates. That was one that came up. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, like, Outpost 54, Outpost 61, things of those. Mm -hmm. six of those nature um i know there's the protest at the beginning was, which where they have the destroy all monsters sign. <laughs> you guys are good so, yeah, yeah i mean we grew up with these things and having worked <laughs> on this stuff with toe and everything it's just like it's all so ingrained and we we're just looking like hey look there's that there, there's you know um yeah i mean i like to i like to yeah i like to reward the audience for paying attention you know just as a film lover one of my favorite things to do is rewatch my my classic favorites and uh, and I really enjoy seeing new things I never noticed before that were clearly very intentional, you know. Um, and so this is designed for that. So, you know, whether you're a new fan of the series or but especially if you're a classic fan, it does. It's, it's a deep dive of Easter eggs. Um, you know, I've got sort of a master list. That I'm trying to see if everybody catches everything. But um uh, I would also pay special attention to the news organizations that appear in the film. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, and I, I know uh, over the credit, say sorry, Jericho, mm -hmm. please continue. Uh, please continue. I'm no, go ahead. Interrupt. Uh, so, no, no, go ahead. Yeah, in credits, there's so many quick, like little pop-ins of news headlines and and uh, little blurbs. It's like that'll take multiple viewings. You know, we we were really yeah, yeah. The, the end credits are just a smorgasbord of, of eggs. Uh, so I would pay close attention to the authors or a specific author in there. Uh, but the other fun thing is to keep an eye on the redacted text. Uh, okay. <laughs> Definitely. That goes by quick, so that'll be a Blu-ray box. Doesn't it? I know. You have to go back multiple times. When you watch it for the first time, I mean, there's so many things going on. You know, everything is so fast-paced that yeah, there's a lot of little, you know, text on screens and things that you don't really see that you have to like, okay, I see it a second time. I know what's going on. I can sit here and try to look at all the screen text and outpost numbers and things like that, you know, the second time around. 
Um, I already have tickets for a third, so we'll see. We'll, we'll try to catch you. Oh, great. Um, yeah, I've got like my girlfriend or four kids or, or three kids that want to see it. So we'll get, we'll get, we'll get the numbers up. Great. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, you know, with so many Easter eggs and things put in there, I was looking, but were you able to, to get Sam in there at all? <laughs> no. In no. 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 That felt like a little too self-serving. I, I did. I didn't want to mix. I didn't want to mix my universe and the Godzilla universe. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I, I I couldn't do it. I know Keith kind of picked out a couple of things in all the statues when uh, when they were going down into Godzilla's home under under the under the ocean there. Oh yeah. It wasn't one of them. Pazuzu. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Two, two fans if they don't. Oh, what I love, what I love about Pazuzu is that it's an actual ancient Middle Eastern demon. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they, they, didn't, they didn't they didn't make up Pazuzu for the Exorcist. Right. That's like a legit piece of folklore yeah. mythology. So I I love the idea that uh, you know some ancient civilizations, various deities might have cross pollinated with that one. This guy, that no, statue is so iconic from the opening scenes of the movie, yeah, The Exorcist, mm-hmm. that it's uh, um, it was great. So like, hey, you know, because obviously we were catching like as much as possible the, the Godzilla Toho stuff, but still, mm-hmm. I know you're a horror movie fan, so we were like, hey, there's some other stuff in there too, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you gotta, you have to appease the old ones. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We'll have to look more to in uh, the uh, underground or the underwater city, uh, Godzilla's, I guess, home. Have to uh, pay more attention to as we're watching it again for like little background things. Uh, yeah, there's a very, very specific one that will probably demand home video analyzation. Um, but when when the underwater city uh, uh, when the underwater city explodes, <laughs> I mean, I'm hesitant to talk about some things because it's, you know we're entering spoiler territory, so I don't know what the exact well, actually, timing of of this is going to be or the usage, but uh, yeah, there's a very after, and then the podcast will be like you. So spoil. Got it. Um, yeah, there's a there's a there's a certain pile of bones that people might want to keep an eye out for. <laughs> All right, now you got me wanting to look for something. <laughs> yeah, but again, it might be a Blu-ray thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blu-ray look. Uh, I was going to ask you too. There's certain scenes in this movie that kind of like feel like callbacks to uh, the Toho films, uh, particularly mm-hmm. uh, when Mothra kind of comes to Godzilla's aid and lands on top of Godzilla, and then also uh, when Godzilla basically is doing the nuclear pulse attack when he's goes, mm-hmm. through, you know, um, mm-hmm. and were those uh, intentional? And uh, you know, were there other scenes that you you did in the film that were clearly that you intended as callbacks to you know the Toho films? Uh, well, what's interesting is that there are some that are intentional, uh, and then there are some which weren't intentional until I went back and noticed that they had already existed in <laughs> one of the yeah. earlier films. So even, you know, even for example, the the idea of the underwater base and sort of the the the, the hatch that opens up to enter the underwater base. You know, in, in my head initially when we came up with that. I thought, oh, that's original. We haven't seen that. And then I go back and watch Destroy All Monsters, and there it is. <laughs> you know, like, they, you know, they, 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 you know, on Monster Island, they had a whole facility built 
under a mountain and to enter it, you, you know, this, this hatch opens up and you have to descend a long tube to, to get to the landing platform. And so I had to assume that there was just certain things that were burned into my subconscious as a kid, you know, and I just sort of forgot, but then they just sort of marinated there for decades until they had the chance to, to get manifested um, in this film. But, um, but yeah, there were, there were some very conscious nods, uh, including burning Godzilla, the nuclear pulse, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mothra coming to Godzilla's aid is just something that I feel like we've seen multiple times. And it's always been a great moment in a classic film to see her doing that. So it only made sense to do it along with obviously, uh, what ultimately happens to her. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, like I, I think there were, there were certain choices, certain moments that um, were conscious, some that weren't, uh, but it's, it, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun mix. That's great. Um, one thing that kind of brought a lump to my throat towards the end there was the, uh, the dedications at the end of the credits. Mm. You know, Yoshimitsu Bono and, uh, and Haru Nakajima. Did you get a chance to meet either of them before they passed? Sadly, I didn't. Um, yeah, I, unfortunately not. There was actually a, a kind of a funny, odd story with Nakajima, though, because uh, there's a scene that we shot in the film, and it didn't survive into the final cut. But in the underwater base... Uh, part of the set deck is this sort of memorial wall, and it's it's modeled after the there's a there's a wall a memorial wall at the CIA where they they um, it's dedicated to you know all those who've fallen in the line of duty. So it's sort of monarch's version of that, and uh, it just lists off all the names of different monarch agents and operatives who who died, you know, uh, in the field. And so what we did was we populated it with the names of some crew members, certain notable names from the Godzilla legacy, both filmmakers and otherwise. And just as sort of a respectful nod to Nakajima, we added his name. And so I think that set was constructed, finished construction around August 1st. And then we were shooting on it for a couple of days. And while we were shooting on it, Nakajima passed away. So it felt very odd, you know, and just a little bit um, fitting that we put up this memorial to him and many other people. uh, And he very sadly passed away uh, while that was happening. Well, it's nice that you're able to include him, I guess, twice then in the movie. That's a nice, great way. Yeah, yeah. And then... It was, it was especially great, too, because one of our um, crew members was a very skilled artist. And what he did is he created these beautiful, like, uh, he created, like, this beautiful shadow art. And he created these, like, um, templates that, like, he would, on a, on a, a piece of paper or a thin piece of metal, and then he would then shine a light through that to project it onto the walls of the soundstage. And he would every week he would create these different um, beautiful pieces. And so he created one as a tribute to Nakajima and, and it stayed up there for, for a good week or so. Where did that go? I'm sorry. I said, where did that go after production in your collection or someone else's? Well, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's only on, it's only 
viewable for a very brief period. Like when it's actually connected to a light and projected onto a wall is, is the only time you can really appreciate it for what it's meant to be. So, you know, I took photos of it. Everybody took photos of it. Uh, but uh, it was kind of appropriate that it was only there for a brief period to enjoy. Okay, so I know, uh, I know Bono was kind of instrumental in getting the rights to Legendary, I believe. Because uh, I know he originally had the rights to do, a, uh, I think, an IMAX Godzilla versus Hedera film. And he was shopping that around Hollywood. And then I guess that ended up kind of morphing into connecting up with Legendary and getting them the rights to get you honestly might know more about the long road for the rights than I do. <laughs> it just it can be a very frustrating uh, game, you know the the uh, the quest to make sure you shore up all the rights to a film before you go into production. So uh, I tend to try and turn a blind eye to it because it can just induce headaches. Well, I know there are a lot of people from Toho there on the premiere and that. Have you gotten much feedback from Toho about the movie? Yeah, they're over the moon, uh, which makes me happy, naturally, because, you know, they're the, they're the caretakers, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, the reactions from them have just been unanimously positive and enthusiastic. They've been, they've been dream collaborators from the start, honestly, like... Uh, you know, as as a lifelong fan, it can make you very nervous to deal with the people who actually manage the property and have approval over everything, and, and you know how nervous they are given the history of the character. Uh, so, it's I feel great knowing that they feel great. Oh yeah. Well, I'll say of the three American Godzilla films that have been made so far. This one feels the closest to a Toho film, uh, particularly a 60s Toho film, um, just with all the monsters and like, the little references and the technology that the, uh, they're using against the monsters. Um, uh, so I imagine they have to be pleased with that. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I think, I think something that the Japanese films were always willing to do more than the American films uh, was to embrace the science fantasy aspect of Godzilla. You know, the he's traditionally thought of as science fiction, but I'm sorry, when you introduce a giant glowing goddess moth and a three-headed golden dragon, you have no choice but to embrace the more fantastical angle. Uh, and that was something that the 60s films did so well, and the 70s. Um, you know, whatever it was in the water back then, and we all have some idea of what it was, uh, the 60s and 70s were definitely more willing to just go for it and and get as weird as possible. Um, and just as a, again, I hate to keep repeating, but just as a fan of that, but also I think, um, the, I think our today's audiences are more willing to embrace the fantastical, thankfully, because of superhero films. Like, honestly, I, I, I feel like because Marvel movies finally went cosmic, you know, DC films finally embraced Wonder Woman and some of the more outlandish ideas, it sort of paved the way for uh, some of the more bizarre concepts of the Godzilla universe. Yeah, I think, too, that you, like you mentioned, you kind of followed a similar template that Marvel started with Iron Man, who's a guy in a mechanical suit. And then yeah. 20 minutes, you know, 
movies later, they've got, you know, talking raccoons and, and, <laughs> and a tree. Yeah. Because it builds to it. And, you know, yeah. you know Godzilla was, was very grounded. And then you're, you know, Kong goes a little further. And then you're able to uh, go just, you know, full bore Mothra and King Ghidorah and super technology and, and these kinds of things. And I think the audience is going to go with it because the other films have kind of laid the groundwork. Yeah, it, it feels great to get weird. <laughs> exactly. That's Toho. Weird. So, you know. Yeah. You know, make it feel like a Toho film in, in many ways. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Well, would you ever want to make a crazy kind of far outside of film like Bono did? Or take it uh, we'll see. We'll see. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe there's a giant magic mushroom creature on the horizon. I don't know. There you go. Well, I'm hoping do the that, Midnight movie. You can do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm hoping that Toho and Legendary can agree to continue the MonsterVerse after uh, Godzilla versus Kong. You know, then I mean, who knows what could what all that could lead to. Yeah, I mean, I've got a feeling based on what I know that that they're only going to progressively get more wonderfully bizarre. Okay. We welcome it. Yeah, you know, you can't you can't introduce a concept like the Hollow Earth and not follow up on that. So, are you going to have any? If I could. Input I was wondering about. about okay. Oh, go ahead, Bob. I was going to ask if you had any input for uh, Godzilla versus Kong, or if any of the things that you laid the groundwork for, other than. Yeah. Um, funny enough, when when I was uh, in post production on this movie. Uh, Legendary asked Zach Shields, my running partner, and I to help out a little bit on the script for Kong versus Godzilla, hmm. uh, which as, as stressed out and spread thin as I was, I was more than happy to do that because it's Kong versus Godzilla, you know, and I wanted to get my fingers in there a little bit, um, A, because they were picking up where my movie left off, but also just I love Kong. You know, he's a close second to Godzilla for me. But, uh, and I, the idea of just getting to type Kong's name on a screenplay uh, felt like a thrill. And it was. It was just fun to write scenes for him because you can do things with Kong you can't do with Godzilla. You know, Kong's a little more human than Godzilla, or at least he appears to be. So um, there's a much more interesting uh angle with him you know the idea that he can form much more intimate bonds with human beings and um so yeah we got to we got to play in that universe for a little while and it was a blast but it was also great because it was less pressure knowing i didn't have to direct it <laughs> right yeah i mean it's coming out what, just a year after yours so yeah <laughs> have fun storming the castle <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I love the fact we don't have to wait three years for something for this next chapter. That it's they're going to fit together very quickly is nice. Uh, I was curious too about some of the uh, secondary titans in this uh, in your movie. Um, had there been any talk about using Toho characters, or was it just from the get go to create you know some unique uh, legendary monsters for the monster? There was a very brief window when um, when I thought we could possibly have some cameos from the other creatures. Uh, but the each Toho monster comes with their own price tag. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, and they ain't cheap. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so even, 
even mentioning them by name would, you know, cost more than a penny. Um, and as, as tempting as it was to, to push for that, it did feel like, okay, we're already giving you Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidorah. And, you know, part of the long tradition of Toho movies is to add new monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't always just rely on the old ones. That was part of the joy I found of, of watching Toho movies as a kid was all of a sudden, boom, there's Kamanga. Oh, cool. Giant spider. Great. Uh, they, they, they got creative. They had fun introducing new iconic creatures. And so we decided to do the same, like embrace the opportunity of, okay, we can't afford uh, the classic creatures. Um, so let's, in, you know, invent some new ones that hopefully might prove to be just as captivating and iconic. Well, Mammoth character was an interesting touch because there's never really been anything like that in the Toho film. Thank you. Thank you. He's my favorite too. That's his name is Behemoth. <laughs> um, and yeah, I wanted to introduce a new mammal to the group because I feel like the monsters are almost always reptilian insectoid or some hybrid of the two. Right. So to introduce another mammal that could kind of stand shoulder to shoulder with Kong or King Caesar, uh, felt really fun. And, and the, the marching orders were to design a creature that felt like it would be at home during the ice age. Uh, but if you pay close attention to his anatomy, you'll see that it's not a true mammoth. It doesn't have a trunk for one. And it's, yeah. yeah, So the, and then the, the two front legs are actually designed more to look like, um, giant sloths. So, uh, and we did tests like you could theoretically, he can stand up on his two hind legs and take a pretty nasty swipe at you with his, with his, uh, clawed arms. So he's, he's ready for battle. That's great. Hey, guys, sorry to jump in here. We've got time for one more question. Okay, go ahead, Bob. I guess guess the best question is what do you have coming up in the horizon? What's your next project? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) 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 And I say that with complete excitement and enthusiasm. Uh, I have been working nonstop since I was 15. I haven't had a break of any kind since then. So, um, you know, Godzilla is my holy grail. It's my brass ring and I've grabbed it. And I now want to sort of just take some version of a breather. Uh, I've actually considered going on some sort of archeological dig or uh, approaching paleontologists to see if I can help them dig up some dinosaur bones. I'm putting it out there. If anybody wants to hire me as an intern, and their various scientific research. I'm down to study pandas, work with giant gorillas or chimps. Uh, I just need a palate cleanser right now. Um, and I do have this itch to just sort of dive into the natural world and dive into some, some sort of scientific pursuits for a while just to shift gears and sort of clear the cobwebs. That's great. We are kindred so, spirits. <laughs> so before... <laughs> I tend to find that Godzilla fans are. Godzilla fans have a lot of wonderful traits in common. Oh, no, definitely. All right. So I guess uh, we're about at the end there. Thanks a lot for all this. That was great. A lot of fun. Yeah, many times. All right. Thanks again. A happy moment. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. 
We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planetatepodcast.blogspot.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet 8 Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Planet 8 Podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end.